At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. Um, so we just, uh, we just recently enjoyed the Super Bowl. So uh, one of my favorite parts of the Super Bowl is the halftime show. So I'm a big halftime show fan. So much so that every time the Super Bowl comes around, I go back and watch previous halftime shows on YouTube. I don't know if anyone else does that. That's one of my things. I, you know, got to go live the, relive those Bruno Mars days or whatever it is that, uh, you know. But uh, th- this, this year's uh, halftime show was like a little bit of a flashback for me. So it's like the late 90s, early 2000s, right? That was like my zone. And top of the charts during that zone was Usher. So it's like, oh man, it was like really, I, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was great, but personal, personal preferences. Um, and, but it, it struck me actually as in, in some ways in preparing for this series because I remember when I was uh, in, in uh, college and Usher's biggest album came out, Confessions was like top of the chart. Some people consider it the greatest R&B album of all time. I don't know if you guys remember that. Many of you do. Some of you, maybe that's a little beyond you. I'm showing my age a little bit. But I remember when that album came out, and I remember the whirlwind that it created around Usher's life. Confessions explored a whole bunch of interesting themes, including infidelity and relationships and personal uh, redemption. And there was all sorts of speculation. I mean, the title track of Confessions is literally about a guy confessing to his girlfriend that he got another girl pregnant. That's the theme. And everyone was like, is that Usher? Is that Chili? Actually, it was related to his producer, Jermaine Dupri. That came out later. But the whole album was really interesting. It explored some really deep themes for one of the greatest R&B albums of all time. And Usher actually remarked in talking about the album later about the kind of vulnerability that he brought to the album Confessions. He said this. He said, All of us have our Pandora's boxes or skeletons in our closets. I let a few of them out, you know. I've got a lot to say. I've got a lot of things and stuff built in me that I just want to let go of. I think Usher's comments on his album and the album in some ways itself points towards something that's common in our human experience. Two things, actually. One, the reality that all of us have skeletons in our closets. That everyone has parts of our lives that we love to hide, that we don't really want people to know about, that we don't really want to bring to the forefront. I doubt there's anyone here who doesn't have something that they feel a little bit of a shame over and they'd be like, I would just rather not anyone know about that. And because of our sinfulness, we all have those experiences and realities. The second thing, though, that I think is interesting is that it also points towards, in light of those things, our desire for renewal. Usher says, I just want to let go of these things. The reality is we have burdens, skeletons, whatever you want to call them, sins, brokenness. But the longing of the human heart 
is that we long to be free from the shame of those things, to actually experience a renewal in light of the things we'd rather keep hidden. We know hiding isn't what leads to the good life, and yet we often don't know how we can actually bring those things into the light in order to experience any sort of healing or redemption or renewal. So how, in light of those two things, can you and I actually engage the skeletons in our closet and see our lives renewed? Because unfortunately, none of us can write a top hit R&B album to assuage our guilty consciences, right? But however, this morning, we're going to kick off our own confessions tour. Total pun intended. And over the next several weeks, we're going to dig into a song together, and we're going to let the lyrics of this song actually help us discover a path for renewal in our lives. This song is found in the middle of the Hebrew songbook, what we commonly know as the book of Psalms. And if this song was written today, it might end up on an album like Usher's Confessions. It explores some deep themes. But I think in it, we're going to find our own path for renewal in light of the skeletons that we might have in our closet. So I invite you with me to Psalm 51. And this morning, we're just going to look at the title. We're going to look a little bit beyond that, but that at least is going to be our starting point today. Psalm 51 has a title, and it begins like this. To the choir master, a psalm or song of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. There's a couple of things I want you to notice about this psalm right from the get-go that's going to be helpful to us. First, this psalm is actually meant to be a public song. It's to the choir master, the director of singing. It's composed for the public worship of God's people. It's meant to be prayed and sung and engaged in our corporate relationship with God. It's meant to help form us in our relationship with him. The second thing, though, is that this song is connected to a specific context. The psalms are all composed by several different composers. This one is of David, there's others of the sons of Korah, some of Asaph, Moses, Solomon. But this one is of David, and it's situated in connection with something that happened in David's life, namely, as it says, when Nathan went to David. Therefore, if we're going to understand this psalm, if we're going to allow it to have the impact I think it can have on us in light of our journey of renewal, we need to get the context behind the psalm. And to do that, we need to go back to the book of 2 Samuel and engage the story of when Nathan encountered David. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. If not, there should be one below the seat in front of you, or if you have a device, I'd love for you to hop on that way. But 2 Samuel records the story of when Nathan came to David. But in order for us to understand 2 Samuel 12, we need to understand and back up a little bit to understand the story that led to Nathan coming to David. So I'm actually going to start in chapter 11 and give you a little bit of the context of 2 Samuel chapter 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and to all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So the Ammonites had declared war on the nation of Israel. They're in the midst of a conflict here. 
in the time when it's time to do battle, David sends his generals. Normally, it was natural that the king would go to the battle lines, but David actually remains in Jerusalem. So the story starts with David not being where he should be. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Here's the reality of David and Bathsheba. David isn't where he's supposed to be. He's on the roof of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, she's not a public exhibitionist, right? It's likely, most of the time, houses in those days had courtyards or walls where people would privately bathe. Remember, there's no indoor plumbing several thousand years ago. And in Jewish culture, the shame for a person was actually if they saw someone naked. It wasn't in nakedness itself. You had to do some things outside. The idea was if you saw someone naked, you would avert your eyes and get away from that moment as quickly as you can. David doesn't do that, though. He sees Bathsheba in this place of nakedness, and he lusts after her. So he asks about her. He inquires about her. Who is this woman? And they come and they say, well, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Now that's significant, and it's significant because Eliam and Uriah are actually part of David's inner circle. David had a group of warriors that were called David's mighty men that he did battle with. They were close companions of him, and both Uriah, later in 2 Samuel we find out, and Eliam are part of David's mighty men. So these aren't unknown men to David, which means Bathsheba is entirely unknown either. So they come to him and they say, hey, this is the daughter and the wife of your boys, okay? Which should clue you in to David saying, oh, okay, she's off limits. But it doesn't at all. So David then uses his power to take her and have sex with her, which in our context, in our understanding, is rape. That's what happens here. I just want to be clear about it. The Old Testament word for rape only includes rape when it comes to violence. It's the only context. But if you read the thing, what you actually see here is David enacts all of this. She's taken from her home, brought to the most powerful person in the empire, who then uses his power to coerce her into having sex with him. She has no voice, no choice, no opportunity here. So that's what David does. And in light of that, she gets pregnant. This is why I say it feels like it should be on an Usher album, right? It's like, what the heck is going on here? But if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. David recognizes that he needs to cover this up somehow. So he calls Uriah, his boy, to come back home, and he says, hey, Uriah, why don't you go down and sleep with your wife? But Uriah is a man of honor. All of the guys are out fighting battle, and he essentially says, no, I'm not going to go down there and enjoy my house while everyone else is out fighting this war. So he sleeps at the palace, on the footstep of the palace. And David's like, well, that's not going to do. So he's like, hey, Uriah, how about tomorrow night you come eat with me? And he throws a big feast, and he keeps feeding Uriah the wine, trying and actually getting him drunk. Because he's like, well, if I get him drunk, then he'll go, he'll lose his inhibitions, and he'll go down and sleep with his wife. But Uriah is still a man of honor, doesn't give in, and eventually returns back to the battlefield. So David can't cover it up that way. 
So then he hashes a plot. He sends Uriah back, and he tells Joab, his general, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to send out Uriah and others into the front of the battlefield against the Ammonites. And then when they're out there, I want you to withdraw the troops back so they're left exposed to the arrows and ultimately then will be killed. And Joab, being a good general, does this. And Uriah and likely others, right? It it likely wasn't just Uriah that's killed in this moment because I don't know about you, but if I was fighting a battle and I saw everyone else running away, I'm probably going to run away, which means others lingered with him in the fact that he was exposed. And ultimately Uriah is killed. So then David goes, takes Bathsheba, and he marries her. So let's just recap. Before we've gotten to 2 Samuel 12, right? David, the king of Israel, who's earlier called a man after God's own heart, who God initiated a covenant with that says, from your lineage, I'm going to establish someone who will set up my eternal kingdom. In the course of one chapter, shamefully lusts after a woman, rapes her while betraying two of his friends, tries to get his friend and husband drunk, and when that doesn't work and he can't cover up his sin, he uses his power to enact a plot to have him killed, along with others. All to cover up his sin. And as the chapter ends, it seems like he gets away with it. Right? That's how 11.27 ends. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So now, in light of all of that, we get to chapter 12. And let's see what happens in chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first 15 verses for us. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if there was too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your own neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So this is the context that Psalm 51, the great song of renewal, comes out of. It's God, via the prophet, confronting David over his sin. And actually, this is important. Because this really is the starting point for where the journey of renewal begins. 
It begins with God graciously confronting our sin. You see, the Lord ultimately confronts our sin so that we can experience renewal. That's what he does. That's what he does in this scenario and situation. Psalm 51 and the prayer of renewal is birthed out of God's work of confronting David. That is the context. Now, you might wonder at that point, why is confrontation necessary for renewal to actually happen and be experienced? Wouldn't this just be easier if we kind of figured things out gradually? Couldn't renewal come without the reality of exposure or being confronted with our sin? Can't we just kind of like let the skeleton stay in the closet and we'll just kind of figure out how to be a little bit better? Is it really necessary for our sin to be confronted and exposed? Well, I think it is, and I think it's important for us. And I think what we see in this story is three reasons why confrontation is actually necessary as the starting point for our journey of renewal, just like it was for David. You see the first reason coming kind of in the first several verses in the story that Nathan brings. And the reality is we need confrontation because we are blind to our own sin, right? Nathan shows up on the scene. Nathan is God's prophet. He's attested to earlier in the book. And prophets play an important role in the life of God's people. In the Old Testament, prophets, along with priests and kings, were ones were instruments of God's authority, the way in which he governed his people. And the prophet's role was to speak God's word to the people and help them to live and walk in righteousness and justice before the Lord. And in light of David's sin, Nathan shows up on the scene essentially to bring God's word to bear on David. And so he tells him this story, the story of a rich man and a poor man. And this poor man who has this lamb that he takes care of and he cares for like his own daughter. And this rich man comes, he doesn't have a lamb or doesn't want to use one of his lambs that he has. And he takes from the poor man and slaughters his lamb to feed his guests. The story captures the heart of what David has done, although to a much lesser degree. And it even hints about this in references like this lamb was like a daughter to him. And the innocence and care and reality of what Uriah and Bathsheba would have enjoyed as husband and wife. But David is so blinded by his own sin, he can't even see the implications of the story right in front of his face. He's indignant that someone would do this. How could this happen? That man should be put to death. He has no pity. He's so blind to his own sin that he would condemn to death someone who would offend an animal and ignore the reality of someone who would abuse and kill God's own image bearers. That's how blind David is. It's why confrontation is needed. Because the truth and reality for all of us is that we are experts at deceiving ourselves when it comes to our own sin. Listen, there is not anyone as good as you are. No one who has the expertise that you do. Not even in the same category at lying to you like you are to yourself. We all do it. We massage our reality. We don't like facing the broken, messed up parts. We don't like to do that in small ways. I still try to convince myself after almost 17 years 
of driving, that I'm a good driver, despite my family reminding me every time they ride with me that I'm not. And I argue, no, I'm good. It's everyone else that's the problem. If they just drove like I wanted them to, then I would be a good driver. And that's something small. How much worse are we with the greater parts of our lives, the parts we want to keep hidden and shameful of? And the reality is all of us try to cover up our sin until it spills out and causes massive destruction. But it's God's grace to confront, to help us see. Because otherwise, what we do is we cover up, we cover up, we cover up, and then it blows up. I was reminded of this um, a few summers ago in my house. So the summer after Alicia and I bought our house here in Michigan was one of those rainy summers, and one day I went um, downstairs, and it was raining, and suddenly there was water bursting out from behind the drywall in my basement, and I was like, uh-oh, right? That's like the worst thing as a homeowner, like, oh no, water. I can do anything, but water drives me, fear scares me the most. So I cut open the drywall, and what I find is that there was a large crack about halfway down uh, the foundation, pretty normal from the settling of a house. It wasn't too, like, major structure, but um, it definitely was spurting water. And I uh, needed to fix it, and thankfully, with some gracious generosity from our church family, we were able to. Um, but what was, here was what was interesting about this moment for me. As we started to do the repairs and figure out this crack, what we realized was this crack had been there for a long time. And in fact, before they drywalled the basement, they tried to deal with it, not by doing the right thing of filling it, sealing it, creating a plan for it. They tried to deal with it by just painting dry lock over it and hoping that would deal with the problem, which it did temporarily until it didn't, which only happened after I owned the home, right? That's always how it works. It's like, gosh, couldn't have done it the summer before. But anyway, stop lamenting about my basement issues. But as I thought about it, I realized that the previous homeowner knew that this existed. At some point, somebody observed that there was a crack forming in the basement. And did they do anything about it? No. And at some point, that crack got worse. And did they do anything about it? Did they repair it? Did they fix it? Did they acknowledge it? No. And then at some point, when they went to drywall the basement, they thought, well, we got to do something about this. So we'll kind of paint some stuff over it, hope that seals it, and then we'll cover it up with drywall. Until suddenly, that crack could no longer hold. And the brokenness that was in my foundation was exposed, and I was left with a mess to fix. And in many ways, that's exactly how many of us operate in our lives. Cracks start to form, and at first we kind of ignore them. And then they start to become a little bit of a problem, so then maybe we try to cover them up. Maybe we try to deal with them temporarily. Maybe we try to manage our sin or struggle or whatever that is a little bit. We don't want anyone else to know and see, so we drywall over those parts of our lives. We keep them in the closet. We don't tell. We don't talk. We don't. And then suddenly, they can't hold water anymore. And we find our lives in places of brokenness and destitution. And the reality is that it's actually the loving grace of God that comes often to try to confront us in our sin. David's sin sexually started long before Bathsheba. He just didn't want to pay attention to it. And yet, even in the worst moment of what he confronted, he wouldn't acknowledge that reality. And so God had to show up and say, hey, David, pay attention. 
And we all need that. It's God's love to not leave us blind to our sin, to continue to allow the destruction to get worse and worse and worse. Because sometimes, even when we face the worst of consequences, we're so blind, we still continue in our sin. And yet God graciously comes to us and confronts our sin Ah, so we wouldn't remain blind. God does this even today, and he does it really through two primary means. He does it through his spirit. Right? J- Jesus promised in John 16, he said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The truth is that God sends his spirit to convict us, to help us see, to note the parts of our lives where we're not living in line with what God has said and called us to, to see our brokenness so that we might bring it into the light. But he also, at times, just like David, uses fellow brothers and sisters in community. The truth is, we all need Nathans in our lives. We need people who will prophetically speak the word of God to us, to hold us accountable, and to call us to the ways of holiness and righteousness and justice. Which means we need to let those people in to our lives, even the broken areas. And that can feel risky, but it's actually vitally important. Anywhere you find God's people where they have silenced the prophetic voice, they are in danger of leading themselves into destruction. And that's true for you and me. God confronts our sin because we're blind to it. But there's a second reason he confronts it, which is not only because we're blind, but ultimately because we've despised his word, which is the focal point of our sin. That's what happens with David. See what happens in verse 7. So he tells him this story. David's irate. He recognizes the injustice. He calls for the death of the man. And Nathan connects the dots where David won't. And he looks at him in the eye and he says, you are the man. You're the one who's done this. Thus says the Lord of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He says, hey, I gave you everything, didn't I? I mean, I took you from a lowly shepherd in a field, and I raised you up to be the king of my people. And I provided you the wealth and status and power and authority. And I would have even given you more if that wasn't enough. So why, David, have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. See, God gets to the heart of the issue for David and confronts him on his true sin that led to all the other sins. You despised my word. You did not follow and trust in me. You didn't trust in my provision and you didn't trust in my commands. And at the end of the day, this is David's issue of sin that leads to all the other one. It was his unbelief in God's character and God's provision that led him to openly rebel against God's word. And the truth is, this is the origin of sin for all of us. If you go back to the very beginning of the story, this is how sin originates. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and God provides every fruit, he says, here you have all of this goodness of creation. Take it, steward it, flourish in it. Just don't eat of this tree. And what does the serpent come along and say? Did God really say? Can his word really be trusted? 
Has he really provided enough for you? No, he's withholding from you. He can't be trusted. You don't need to obey his word. You take it for yourself. And the truth is, the issue for David and the issue for Adam and Eve, it's the same for every single human being. That in our pride, we reject God's authority and his commands because we do not trust his character or his provision. The core root of sin is our unbelief and our lack of trust in God. Tim Chester is one of my favorite authors. He's a pastor in England. Um, I've read so many of the things he's done. He's been a a huge influence on my own heart. And he wrote a book several years ago that um, was super impactful on me, on the reality of spiritual transformation. It was called You Can Change. And in that book, he discusses how we can actually engage the sinful parts of our lives and see God transform them. But before he explains it, he helps us try to focus in and locus on what's at the root issue of all the sin, all the struggle, all the things that we experience. And this is what he says. He says, sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. Behind every sin is a lie. The root of all our behavior and emotion is the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures. People are given over to sinful desires because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Humanity's problem is futile thinking, darkened understanding, and ignorant hearts. This is the cause of indulgence, impurity, and lust. We sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God and that his rule is oppressive, that we will be free without him, that sin offers more than God. This is true of every sin and every negative emotion. What is true of David is true of you and me. That every sin, every struggle, every negative emotion, the pain in our life, down underneath all of that is our unbelief. That we do not trust God. We think we're better off without him. That his rule is oppressive. That we're better running our lives than he is. And when we have that unbelief, what we do is we spurn his word. We turn from it and reject it. And unfortunately suffer the consequences of it. And yet God, time and again, and just like he does with David, confronts our sin to help us see what our core problem is, to call us back and recognize your main issue is not just the consequences and sin that results from your rejection of my word. The core issue is that you have despised my word. And so God challenges David to recognize, yes, you sinned against Bathsheba in a heinous way and you sinned against Uriah, but you did that. Because at the core, you failed to trust and obey me. All of us can be prone to despise the word of God. Sometimes we despise God's word by not giving it the priority in our life. We live with a did God really say mentality. We do that as a culture. But we also do that individually. And we despise God's word by never giving it priority. But we also despise it when we directly reject it. And when we do this, we do it to our detriment. And God knows this. So he confronts our sin because he wants to call us back to see my word is life. My word isn't oppressive. 
My word is what leads to flourishing. It's what leads to the good life. It's what brings justice and righteousness and the good things that this world is divine for. Where humanity obeys God's word, they flourish. Where they turn from it, eventually the crack is exposed and destruction comes. So it is out of God's love to call us to account to obey his word. Not because he's some rule master that wants to get you to obey him. It's because he loves you enough to know I've built wisdom and justice and righteousness in this world and I've revealed it by my word. And when you obey my word, you will flourish. That's what the whole book of Proverbs is about. And yet we're so prone not to give God's word priority in our life. Does God's word have priority in your life? Do you read it, soak in it, engage it? Or are there areas that you've ignored it or even maybe outright rejected it? Don't be fooled. The crack might be there. It might be covered up. The skeletons might be hidden. But God is just, and at some point, they will not hold water anymore. It is out of his love that he confronts our sins, so we would turn back to his word. But even in that, there's a greater hope in God's confrontation. Because although he confronts us out of our blindness, and he confronts us because we've despised his word, he ultimately confronts us because he wants us to experience his grace and forgiveness. Look at the next several verses that happen in light of this, right? Nathan essentially lays out, starting in verse 10, the reality that David's sin will have consequences in his life and his family's life. That his injustice will carry forth in injustice. That violence and the sword would be the culture of David's family. That internal conflict and evil will result within his home. That open shame and public violations of his marriages will occur. What David has sown in his family will have an effect. And this comes true because sin does have consequence. In fact, what we see in all of David's son, for all the great man that David was, is that his son seemed to learn, Mary Evans says this, I think it's brilliant, that his son seems to learn more about David's willingness to turn from God's word for his own pleasure than they did anything else in his life because they all repeat the same pattern. Solemn, Absalom, all of them. And so Nathan confronts him with the consequences of his sin. And David recognizes it, and he responds in verse 13 and says, I have sinned against the Lord. He also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and others for sure. But he recognizes where the origin of all of that came from, that he had sinned against the Lord. And it's right here where Psalm 51 fits. Because Psalm 51 becomes David's confession of his sin and his pleading for God's renewal. And we're going to study over the next few weeks the words that David says in that to see how we can see and bring that prayer to bear in our own lives and journey of renewal. But David admits and he recognizes and he repents for what he has done. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he made excuses. When David was confronted with his sins, he recognizes the dire reality of what he's done and casts himself on the mercy of God. And God responds with mercy. David says, or Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, God ultimately confronts David's sin because he wants him to experience forgiveness and renewal. And that's why God confronts our sin as well. Because he knows the detriment the things hidden in the dark bring to our light. And so he confronts them to bring them out, 
Not so that he can expose us and put more shame on us, so that he can heal us, so that he can help us experience his love and forgiveness, his grace and his mercy. That's what David experiences here. The reality is God's law called that somebody who would rape another man's wife and would murder him should be put to death. That was the penalty. Everything else in the thing is consequence. That was the penalty for sin. But David doesn't experience the penalty. In light of his confession and what he brings before God, God shows him mercy. Now, to be certain, the consequences don't go away, both in his family and ultimately the consequence that falls on his son who passes away. And the sad reality of the sin of our sin is that God, in his just ordering of the world, has said it so that there are consequences for our sin. That is true. Again, Mary Evans is helpful here, and I think she helps bring weight to this when she writes, Scripture is very clear that in most instances, God will allow the consequences of our actions to stand even when other people get hurt in the process. There's a certain aspect of God's justice that's true in the reality of the consequence for our sin. But even though there's consequence, God in his grace saves us from the penalty. That God passes over our sin. And you see that in two key ways here that I think we need to just connect with for a second. One is that God puts away David's sin. Now that language is really intentional. That word put away actually in the Hebrew is the word Passover. That God passes over David's sin. And it's strategic. It's meant to connect you back to the reality of the first Passover event. When God brought his judgment against Egypt but he passed over his people because of the blood of the sacrificed lamb on their behalf that was put on their doorways. That, that there was some, something that covered them in order to not experience the full penalty of God's judgment. And what God references to David is that event, recognizing God is not ignoring David's sin. He's not looking at it and going, ah, no biggie, David. Just raped and killed the call. You know, it's not, no, no worries. He's like, no, I'm passing over this. Meaning there's a covering here that covers your sin that I'm allowing to stand, even in my justice and mercy. And the truth is that for all of us who have sinned, for all of our skeletons, that God has provided that same covering for you and I. This Paul would make this point in Romans 3, in one of the great passages of the Bible. He'd say, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, everyone sinned, everyone has skeletons, we've all fallen short, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is that redemption? Whom God put forward as a, here's the big word, propitiation by his blood. Kim, do we have Romans? We should have Romans 3 back there, right? Can you throw that on the screen for me real quick? There we go was a propitiation for, by his blood. That's a big theological word, but it means atoning sacrifice. It means something, sacrifice that then covers the sinful one. That's what the lamb did originally in the Passover. What Paul makes the point is, that's what God's done for everyone in their sin in Jesus. He's the propitiation. He's the covering. 
It's his blood. That's why we sing things like, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Because it's his blood that covers our sin to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God passed over David's sin because he knew the ultimate substitute would come in Jesus. And he passes over our sin on the other side of the cross because Christ has died for us. This shows him both righteous at the present time and that he's just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The truth is, there was a penalty. David deserved to die, but Jesus died in his stead so that his sin could be passed over. And you and I deserve to die, not just physically, but eternally separated from God for our sins. And yet, there was another one, a truly righteous, perfect son of God who came and stood in our place and received that death on our behalf so that we would not experience the penalty for our sins. And God confronts our sin to say, recognize, you can't save yourself from your sin, but I've done what's necessary so your sin can be covered if you come to me by faith. If you confess your sins, bring them out of the darkness, bring them before me, and let me cover them through the sacrifice of my son. So we see God's great mercy in the passing over of David's sin, but we see another mercy that oftentimes gets hidden, which is that in that reality, God takes David's sin and he enfolds it in his great story of redemption. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew sets out to show that Jesus is the true promised king. That he's the one God had promised David long before that he would send someone in his lineage who would establish his kingdom fully and finally forever. And so in Matthew 1, Matthew sets out to make that argument by essentially showing you Jesus' family tree. He goes through all the history. This was his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-grandfather. And he goes blah, 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 blah. And there's an important note. There's actually several of them. But there's one key that's related to our story in how he tells the reality that Jesus is the true king. It comes in Matthew 1, 6. And it's in reference to David. It says this. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We can look over that fact But the true reality of what it reminds us is, is that God takes the worst sin by the archetype king and he enfolds it into his story that ultimately brings about his Messiah. And it's right there that you and I can have hope for our own renewal in light of the skeletons that we all have in our closet. The truth for David is that his sin wasn't the end of his story, and it certainly wasn't the end of God's story. But God was sovereign enough and gracious enough in light of his confession and repentance to enfold his worst moment to still bring about his great plans and purposes of redemption in Christ Jesus. And so I don't know what skeletons are in your closet. I don't know what things bring you shame, or what you try to hide from the world. But here's what I want you to know this morning. Those skeletons do not have to be the defining reality of your life and your story, and they certainly do not have to be the end. You do not have to keep those in darkness. Because God is a God who graciously confronts our sin so that we might experience a freedom from our shame and a renewal of our lives that our stories can be enfolded into his great story that bring him glory and ultimately point towards his greater work of redemption. 
The truth is, if the story of a murderous, rapist king can be enfolded into God's great plan, then certainly can't he take your and I's sins and skeletons and enfold them in as well. Yes, he can, and he's shown us that he can in the work of his son, Jesus. Therefore, all of us have the hope of renewal. That's why we're leaning into this series. Because there's genuine renewal available for those parts of your lives. Psalm 51 will help give it the language and the lens for how we can experience. But the truth of the matter is when we see the larger context, we recognize that God ultimately confronts us so that we might be renewed. And that's where we have to start our journey. I don't know how you step into that journey, but here's what I know is true. All of us in this room have parts of our lives that we still want to keep hidden. That's the nature of sin. Some of those might be big or small, but we all have them. But the invitation of God is to allow him to convict those so that we bring that before him so that you and I would begin to experience the renewal he has for us. And that's what I want to do. I I want to take that step together this morning in response to this text and to just walk through a moment allowing God to work in our hearts. So I'm going to invite you just for a moment where you're at to bow your head and close your eyes, not to be weird, just to give you some undistracted moments before the Lord while we're together. And while you're there, I'm gonna, I want to ask you to just invite the Holy Spirit to bring conviction on any areas of your life where you have spurned God's word. Just ask him. Just say, Holy Spirit, would you show me or bring to my heart or my mind anywhere where I have turned from God's word and as he does that just confess those before the lord just just like the lens of or the language of david just say lord i have sinned against you and then as you do that so invite conviction confess the reality of your sin as that happens take a moment and then confess your faith in jesus as your covering confess before god i have no hope of ever atoning for what i've done and if it wasn't for you the shame would linger But I trust that Jesus is my substitute, that he paid the price for my sin, and I trust in him alone for salvation. So why don't you just take a moment to do that, to invite conviction, to confess before the Lord that you have sinned, and then also confess in your faith in Jesus as the covering for your sin. Just give you a minute quietly in your seats to do that, and then I'll guide us in the next step after.
as you confess your sin and confess your faith in Christ, hear God's word from Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. If you've confessed your sin, and you've confessed your faith in Christ, then the next step is just rest in God's forgiveness. That you are clean because of him. That he has passed over your sin in his great mercy. And therefore, you can just breathe. So wherever you're at, I just invite you to do this. Take a big, deep breath and just rest in the grace of God. Because of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.